Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello and welcome to The Crux. This is Gary Sheffer and I'm here as always with Mike Fernandez. Mike, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I, I think this is our 33rd episode. Yeah, pretty good. huh? That's amazing, isn't it? And they're Look, still listening. I know it. I'm grateful to all our listeners. We get really good responses on this. Let's try to keep it going here. And look, we're in the middle of maybe the best crisis communications case study that we're ever going to see in our lifetimes, Mike. As sad as it all is, there's lessons that you can see every day. And one of which is the daily briefing that the president does, the U.S. President Donald Trump. And we sort of came to a head on this last week uh, after the president talked about suggested, implied, not really the most important thing, but talking about ingesting disinfectants, using UV light in the body and other things to help cure coronavirus. And he was criticized for this. And in fact, those comments prompted brands such as Lysol and Clorox to put out statements telling people not to ingest their disinfectants. Obviously not the kind of information you want coming from the White House podium. And since then, the president has said these briefings are a waste of time. He's not going to do them anymore because the news media is too negative about them. Like, is this good? And I've got some statistics I'll give you in a minute. What do you think about this? This is crisis communications in real time that we're all witnessing and experiencing. Should these stop? Well, you know, if if you listen to the political pundits, right, it's a good thing if you're a Republican Trump supporter to stop them. Right. right. (laughs) And a bad thing if you're a Democrat. You know, the way the story goes is that the briefings haven't helped the president much, especially when he's kind of gone off script, like with the disinfectant comment. But, you know, I also put this in the context of what we even have seen in business, right? So we're at the 10th anniversary, the BP oil spill. Wow. Right. So it was 10 years ago, the BP CEO, Tony Hayward, was saying, you know, the Gulf of Mexico is a very big ocean. We are putting into it just a tiny amount into the total water volume. And then also he famously said in the mix of everybody else being impacted by what had transpired by his company, I'd like my life back. Yeah. We've kind of been down this journey before, and I think there's some leadership lessons here that we probably need to tend. Yeah. The Washington Post and today the New York Times have both done analyses of the president's topics during these briefing sessions, 35 sessions since March 16th. During that time, Trump has spoken for more than 28 hours, eating up 60% of the time that officials spoke. So he was speaking 60% of the time. And over the past three weeks, the tally comes to more than 13 hours of Trump including two hours spent on attacks and 45 minutes praising himself and his administration, but just four and a half minutes expressing condolences for coronavirus victims. So the leadership lessons, Mike, that you talk about there are pretty obvious. Yeah. Well, what you learn in a crisis and, and from studying crises, as you well know, Gary, is one of the first things you have to do is show empathy for the victims. You also need to share an overview of the steps that are going to be taken to solve whatever the problem is or ameliorate the situation. Yes. And then hand it over to the experts. This is not a time to, to freelance. Right. More important than being seen and heard is making sure 
Public health and safety are number one. You know, and making sure then that the guidance that you're providing is consistent, that it's smart, it's accurate, and that you're giving the best advice from experts to solve the problem. In some ways, PR people and executives might do themselves a good service by paying attention to our New York Yankees. Yeah. <laughs> you do not bring in the closer until the 19th, until the ninth inning. Exactly. So. <laughs> uh, totally. And look, your point, Mike, about getting it right at the Times analysis this morning is that during his speaking time, about a quarter of what he said, meaning the president, turned out to be false. Yeah. Or at least questionable based on the facts. I just think you're so right that we can put together a great case study of communications leadership from this. Mm -hmm. I even read this morning, uh, E.J. Dion, distinguished Washington Post columnist, calling for the governors in the United States to take this over mm -hmm. and for them to designate it's one of the governors. They have, right? right, exactly. And designate one to speak on a national basis, because really they're the ones in charge. And I might add, this is not a Republican Democrat. Correct. Say. Right. So you have Mike DeWine doing great things, yeah. you know, in Ohio. And uh, the guy in, in Maryland too, Hogan, Governor yeah, Hogan, yeah, Larry a Hogan. Republican. Yeah, and Larry yeah. Hogan doing great things as well too. So more to come on this and certainly in crisis communications classes and practices, lots to learn from. Also one, now you're in the energy industry these days at Enbridge, a great company. Mm -hmm. Boy, the story in the oil industry particularly has been difficult recently. You know, intuitively you say low, low oil prices. In fact, on one day below zero oil prices mm -hmm. ought to be good news for generations like you and I that were brought up mm -hmm. fighting mm -hmm. oil prices and higher yeah. gas prices yeah. and products. Now, if we only had some place to drive to. <laughs> exactly, right? I was saying that to my wife, Barbara, this morning is like, I have not filled up my gas tank in about two months. We've seen oil prices just collapse, falling demand, obviously, from the economy, the spat that we had between Russia and Saudi Arabia on supplies. But this has been terrible for oil companies, and uh, there are many employees and investors. Look, every study we see shows that we need fossil fuels for the foreseeable future. How can big oil and other energy companies such as yours tell that story? We need oil, and mm -hmm. if we don't have it, the ramifications and other fossil fuels are just, for everyday people, are really bad. So you're right. The industry's received something of a double whammy, right, with these incidences, so that we've seen increased supply. At yep. the same time, now we're seeing diminished demand. You know, when people come back to work, as factory capacity rebounds, as people commute and the economy gears back up, I think we'll, we'll have a new equilibrium and we'll establish maybe not quite to where we were six months ago, mm -hmm. but we'll establish that over time. My guess though, is just like those studies you mentioned, there's still gonna be a great need for fossil fuel, probably for decades. Mm -hmm. And even if you look at the work coming out of the UN Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, that some of us insiders know as COP21, where the whole focus was trying to hold global warming to 2.7 degrees mm -hmm. Celsius by the end of the century. If you take that into consideration, the infrastructure for renewables just isn't there to pick up no. the slack, nor is the cost structure, quite frankly. While we'll hear some criticism and we'll hear greater calls for cleaner energy, my guess is what we'll see is we'll see some transitioning. 
And we've kind of banked on that transitioning in our company, which is there'll be some shift away from coal, a little bit maybe from oil, but that's going to shift towards natural gas. We're going to get focused on cleaner technologies in terms of development and production. But uh, I mean, you know this space too. Which is a GE spinoff, has been a leader in kind of oil drilling and production equipment and services. What's your take on this? I completely agree. And look, I'm a huge fan of who isn't of renewables. Uh, infrastructure cost structure is not there yet. I do think some of the fossil fuel companies can put their money where their mouth is in doing research yeah. on renewables and become an energy company, Mike, right? Yeah, but this bridge period where we really, I mean, some of the most vulnerable populations in the world are going to be relying on fossil fuels for right. a long time. Right. And without them, and that's why I think I'd like to see some of the fossil fuel businesses do a little bit better storytelling based on strategy that recognizes they are bridge fuel. On the other side of it, I say the divestment movement, where some big investment funds are divesting of fossil fuels, is just not realistic. And there are very responsible fossil fuel companies who recognize the challenges around climate change, and a blanket treatment of them, I think, is unfair. Yeah, I'm with you. And I, and I think the other part of it is probably the biggest change we're going to see is going to take some time. There will be reduction in the use of coal. You look at the air in China, you look at the challenges in certain parts of Europe. I think there's a real opportunity to shift there to like liquid natural gas and where there's sunshine, maybe a little bit no, of you yeah. know, some of these other technologies as well. Yeah, exactly. So last topic for the week. I was amazed. Uh, you know, we're sports fans, you and I, and I thought holding the NFL draft virtually was just a really bad idea. And man, was I wrong, right? <laughs> so I'm a Green Bay Packer fan, everyone out there. So we drafted a quarterback. I don't know why we've got the best quarterback in the league, but there you go. But 15.6 million viewers, a record. Roger Goodell, the commissioner, was in his basement. The general managers and coaches were in their basements and living room. The kids were running around in the background. Bill Belichick had his dog in the background, the Patriots coach. It looks like the dog was making the picks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, he's got some. Uh, holes to fill out there in, in Gillette Stadium. But believe it or not, this, you know, sort of modest draft replaced what was supposed to take place, I'm not kidding, in the fountain at the Bellagio in Vegas. They were going to put the stage. So we went from this crazy high-end, you know, sort of spectacle to somebody's basement. And I have to say, from a PR standpoint, it looks like a win for the NFL and Goodell. They haven't had one in a while. But Mike, my question for you is, so is this the new normal? You know, we see this and we see Saturday Night Live being produced from home and it works, right? Yeah, it, yeah, and it yeah. works. So two things. One, it was actually kind of fun to watch because most of these players were with their families. Yeah. It wasn't like they were in a big auditorium and it was sounds are blaring and whatnot. It was more relatable yes. than ever before. Great point. But the second part of this, I think, is the real summary. In a word, sports fans are starving. <laughs> you know, You're not kidding. <laughs> 15.6 million viewers, you got to be kidding. Right. They're not seeing a game, but to hear names of players who might see playtime way into the future, that's exactly. amazing. Exactly. And, and put it in perspective. Remember last fall's World Series, yep. Washington Nationals, Houston Astros? I looked it up. 
the average audience across the seven games was just 13.9 million. Wow. So this beat the World Series. Now, it is interesting in this void, kind of what sportscasters have been filling that void with. (laughs) Now, if you're in Canada, they keep replaying game seven of the NBA Eastern semifinals between the Sixers and the Raptors, where Uh, Kawhi Leonard, you know, it's the last thing. Now, I'm a Sixers fan. Get over (laughs) Well, you and I have talked about this before. I keep watching Aaron Boone hitting the home run to beat the Red Sox. <laughs> you know, I've seen that about 100 times during this lockdown. It's amazing to me. And you're right. Starving is the right word. If there's going to be a V recovery in any part of our world, I think when live sports comes back, the numbers are going to be a V recovery, right? Oh, it just, oh, it's going to be astronomical. Are, this is a great conversation. We have a great guest as well. Uh, somebody I admire so much and you'll when you listen you'll understand why and a good friend of Mike's and mine Catherine Hernandez Blades and she's the ESG leader and the CCO at AFLAC listen to the story she's going to tell about how they're working with young children and the AFLAC duck it's really a special story with that let's go to our interview Our guest today on The Crux is one of America's top communicators. She and her teams have won numerous PR and marketing honors. In fact, last year, they won Best in Corporate Branding at the PR Week Awards for My Special Aflac Duck. She is a Senior Vice President at Aflac, where she serves as its Chief ESG and Communications Officer, Catherine hernandez Blaze. Catherine's early career was in Louisiana, where I believe she grew up. Then she went on to work for a number of large companies focused on electronics and aeronautics. She worked as director of marketing and international communications at Lockheed, then became the VP of communications and public affairs at Raytheon's space and airborne systems division, and then VP and chief marketing and communications officer for Flex, previously known as Flextronic. Uh, She joined AFLAC as its lead communicator in January of 2014. Catherine, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, we love having you on the crux. You've had such a wonderful career, won so many uh, incredible awards, the Con Lion, to be recognized by Forbes as one of the top uh, most influential global CMOs, to be, you were inducted into the PR Week Hall of Fame and being listed among the top Latinos in corporate America. But what I would like to get your thoughts on today is what we're going through now. AFLAC provides insurance protection, uh, as we know, to more than 50 million people in the US and Japan. So how did that Asian perspective on the pandemic before it became a big issue in the U.S., shape AFLAC's response to COVID-19? Well, Mike, it's a fascinating question. They were about two weeks ahead of the U.S. on all activities, but you also have to look at the cultural differences. So, for example, their first person to test positive for COVID happened about two weeks before it really gained attention in the United States. And it was a contract worker. They cleared out the entire floor, issued a press release, which is something we wouldn't do in the U.S. But on the other side of that, uh, it meant we had to file an 8K in the U.S. because of their press release. 
but we had a lot of wonderful lessons learned about social distancing, getting people to work remotely very quickly, and it really influenced a lot of the decisions that happened in the U.S. A little bit converse of that, uh, the Japanese government was much slower to mobilize mm. than the U.S. government was. The U.S. government was much more aggressive in our, our state municipalities, our local municipalities, much more aggressive around shelter in place, stay at home, and all of those types of things. Um, as a matter of fact, just last week, well, it was the 17th, actually, of April, did um, Prime Minister Abe actually issue a shelter-in-place order or an emergency order of some form in all 47 prefectures. Interesting. So I want to follow up on, on Mike's question. We both in our careers have seen a number of crises. I had my fair share of GE, but really nothing like this. Uh, so I'm always interested in seeing how companies respond internally. We all know that's where you start and and how you manage internal communications. Um, in a case like this where you virtually overnight you were working remotely, um, what changed and, and what did your team have to do differently, Catherine, for, on a day-to-day basis in dealing uh, with employees and your, your communications with them? Well, I, I won't bury the lead. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's fascinating that we've become much more high touch, which is so counterintuitive because you would think to build real relationships and real connections, you would have to physically connect. However, we're using this artificial means, if you will, we're doing everything virtually through technology, but yet people are much more inclined to pick up the phone rather than shoot an email. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've noticed has changed and evolved. That that desire for that human connection seems to be more relevant. Interesting. Even in this virtual world, because virtual is our new reality. Now, the way we started was we did a stakeholder map. And literally, it was 30 pages. And it was (laughs) where, when, and how did people want to be met? What messages would be most relevant to them? Um, and how do we keep people moving forward? Mm-hmm. Throughout this crisis, we've actually put together a grid of tactics that we've imposed by audience. And that grid is 60 pages long of just tactics. Wow. When you, when you think of communication with the board of the direct directors, the regulators, the employees, we have a 1099 workforce, right? We have 30,000 licensed independent sales agents and a third of those are also licensed to sell our competitors' products. So we have to like, they have to like us. They have to like you, yeah. And so we have to communicate with them. It sort of raises the bar, if you will. Um, so we, but it's, it's not just that. It's about what everybody cares about. It's not just physical well-being or health. It is also mental well-being and mm-hmm. health and financial well-being and health. Because if the company is going to come out of this hole when this is over, and this will be over, and we will come through it, and we will be whole, employees are cur- concerned about the obvious, right? They're worried about their job security. Yeah, yeah. They're worried about their spouse's job security. We're in a small town in Georgia. We have four major employees in the city. So we have um, Fort Benning, we have Tesis, Synovus, and of course, Aflac. 
So even though you might work for Aflac, you could still be affected if your spouse works for another company that has done headcount reductions, which is why the financial health piece comes so important to a regular W-2, right? Their, Their spouse may have taken a pay cut. Their spouse may have been furloughed. Furloughed, exactly. Or laid off. So with trying to keep them comfortable, given the fact that they are now short order cooks, they are now homeschooling their children, mm. they, they, you know, there is no, no break for them. So what they care about most is how and what we try and communicate with them most. Our 1099 guys are independent contractors. Right. So, so we have provided them with not only a wealth of information about government opportunities to keep them whole financially, but we've created our own interest-free loan program for those people. Terrific. It, it really is remarkable. But again, it's, it's keeping your sales force whole. So when you come through this, you don't have to reconstitute a sales force. Exactly. But so smart. Well, so. you know, we have, a, we have a really smart leadership team. I, I have to give <laughs> everyone their credit. But even recruiting, right? Recruiting is a lifeblood to any organization. How do you send somebody for a drug test right now? Exactly, right. Um, states are not administering insurance exams right now, mm-hmm. right? They mm-hmm. can't. They can't put that many people in a room. So our government affairs team has worked with regulators to set up a temporary license program by state in the states that will allow it. So that means we're onboarding people differently, we're training people differently, we're mentoring people differently. So while you think, wow, recruits, yes, that may be not be your typical W-2, something else we've done is we've entered into agreements to buy Benefits Harbor and a big chunk of Zurich North America mm-hmm. while all this is going on. But you can't onboard people in a traditional way. You can't even have the new leadership team walk the floors with them. We've had to do all of this virtually. Amazing. No wonder your tactics are 60 pages long. Exactly. Exactly. And that's just the top level. Uh, How, you know, the question we always get asked internally, Catherine, is how frequently, how much is too much? In fact, I just had a call this morning from a company asking, am I overwhelming my people? Am I reaching out to them too much? How do you think about that? Is it possible to over-communicate? Um, you don't want to be tone deaf. Right. I don't believe in over, so there's such a thing as over communicating. Um, you just don't want to be redundant and boring to the extent that people start ignoring you. But what we are doing is we're asking people, we're doing pulse surveys. How are you holding up? What do you need from a technology perspective? What do you need from a communications Mm. perspective Mm -hmm. and all of that sort of thing? How frequently Um, are you doing those? We are doing those about every three weeks. Wow. The, see, the thing that's struck me that you said is this sense of humanity that people really are seeking from their employer in this. And it sounds like you, you, you are all delivering on that. It's, it really changes the job of a CEO and a CCO and other senior leaders, senior HRO as well is this human touch that people want that they're not able to get elsewhere in a situation like this. And they want to hear it from their leadership. Right. That 
that never changes. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I teach my students, by the way, about stakeholder mapping. So I'm glad to hear they're, they're hearing directly from you that you actually use it when you're out in the work world. <laughs> Avoided at your peril. <laughs> I mean, when we were co constructing international arms programs, you know, 20 years ago, we were doing stakeholder mapping. Okay, who in government needs to be exactly. okay with the deal the way it's going through? And, yeah, very Terrific. important. So, so I want to change gears a little bit. You know, last February, uh, your remit expanded to include the portfolio for ESG. Two things. One, I would love to hear how you've approached your first year and what's changed. And then two, more broadly, maybe even philosophically, how is your new focus on ESG changing your view and the company's view about corporate social responsibility? Great questions. And I'm going to caveat my response with the fact that you guys have known me a long time. I'm a corporate walk. Okay. I'm just a walk. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> uh... We feel your so, pain. So, so, of course, of course, I started, uh, one was benchmark followed by a gap analysis. You know, what is the peer set doing? What are the best in class outside of the peer set doing? Where are our gaps? How do we fill those gaps? And then how do we report out differently? It, it's changed my view because I think this is an opportunity for us to move something that was traditionally housed in corporate, and by that I mean the S uh, in, in communications, I mean the S part, the corporate social responsibility pieces, mm -hmm. and it moves them to the level of being almost material, which, you know, I've spent a lot of time measuring throughout my career and trying to be able to talk to the finance guys in the way they want to hear the messaging. Um, same with leadership. This actually puts something new on the table that I can leverage to enhance the value of the function within my leadership team because it matters. You don't want to get yeah. pinged on governance. You don't want any SEC violations and all that kind of stuff. Nobody does. Um, but to, typically that's been an IR's wheelhouse, which sometimes mm -hmm. may or may not fall under comms. Mm -hmm. So how has measurement of these activities changed? Well, first of all, everybody's got a quote unquote standard and I'm, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers. But, <laughs> but what we chose to do is what made sense to us. When we looked at the gaps, when we looked at the peer set, when we looked at what best in class teams were doing, we actually determined that there were four reporting structures that made the most sense to us. On Under the S, if you will, the social, um, UN SDGs, GRI, and then under the more financial governance and environmental, uh, we pulled in SASB and we did, actually did our first TCFD disclosure report. We created a hub online. So if you go to esg.athlac.com, you will see a work of beauty, um, if I do say so myself. <laughs> I uh, have a brilliant team, and, and we, we pulled together um, a very inclusive hub of all of the key materials that we know that analysts and investors are looking for. But the real beauty of the site is not just the fact that it's pretty and it has all the material that it needs to have and it's all in one place, 
beauty of the site is in the uh, digital coding on the back end because all of these people are using aggregators. Some people are using super aggregators. Yeah. So by defining the back end of that hub in such a way that it makes it easier for the aggregators to pull the data, we hope to see our rankings and scores on all of these uh, lists and databases and all these kinds of things improve. Interesting. That's fantastic. So coming around to one of the great branding uh, achievements in history is the Affleck duck. Really, when, when you think about it, it's really amazing. So uh, I know you did this project uh, with the special Affleck duck, and I would love you just to tell us that story, Catherine, about, I mean, it really is uh, terrific around corporate purpose, branding, and social value, right? I, I just, so if you don't mind telling us that story, that I, I think our listeners would love to hear it. Well, it's a values-based approach to everything, whether it's our employee communications, our our interactions with the public uh, in regard to keeping our promise to policyholders. But I'm going to take you back about four years. We had had a 20-plus year relationship with the Affleck Cancer Center in Atlanta, Georgia, at Children's (laughs) Healthcare of Atlanta. And over that time, we had donated over $100 million to the research and treatment of pediatric cancer. Mission critical, because if you look at all of the funding the U.S. government provides for cancer research and treatment, less than 4% is earmarked for childhood cancer. Mm -hmm. So it's something um, that everyone can get behind. But we didn't talk about it. We weren't talking about the great things we were doing. So um, it took me about a year and a half, because I have uh, our CEO has been CEO for 30 years this year. Very humble guy, believes you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That's got to be some kind of record. (laughs) He is the second longest tenured CEO in the Fortune 200 behind Warren Buffett. Ah, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So um, I finally convinced him by letting the data drive the strategy. So I went, worked with an organization called Reputation Institute. Mm Mm-hmm. And they have um, a model that's seven dimensions of reputation, 23 attributes behind those seven dimensions. If it's weighted by industry, if you look at the financial services industry, of which insurance and AFLAC are clearly a part of, workplace governance and citizenship comprise about 42% of the model. So I knew that by going after the attributes, I could get the lift on the pulse score. And when you do that, Um, every time you move your pulse score, a statistically significant amount, so say 3%, if you will, which, which they consider statistically significant, they say based on 30 years of research or 20 years of research, rather propensity to buy goes up 5% propensity to recommend goes up six and a half percent because we have 65 years of sales data. We have set up our own algorithm internally that gives us a value on return on reputation based on that model, wow. based on our data. So that's how I got him to let me launch a CSR program because as my boss says, before you got here, CSR was a customer service representative. <laughs> <laughs> so to, do, to, to, to build out that program and to brief out the board of directors quarterly over these past four years, and I'm gonna to get to my special app like that because it was the culmination of this right. program. Um, but I want people to understand that there's a method behind the madness. It's, it's a 
feel good thing to do. Yes, it's the most rewarding project I've ever worked on in my career. Absolutely. But it, it makes business sense. Exactly. Goals and objectives. So um, when I brief out the board, I take our full score and then I overlay our um, employee uh, engagement scores, our social media sentiment scores, our editorial media sentiment scores, our uh, sales numbers, accounting mm -hmm. for the fourth quarter anomaly, which is uh, open enrollment. And obviously, that's an artificial spike. And our stock price. And while I'm not doing multivariate regression analysis, so I can't isolate the metric enough to prove causation, I can prove correlation. Wow. Because when one's up, everything is up. So now I've got a method by which I'm communicating with the board, I'm communicating with the rest of my C-suite in a way the operations people can understand because it's a chart that looks like their charts and it's numbers driven, numbers based. We launched my special Aflac doc in prototype form at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas in January of 2018, knowing that we would start distributing them at for Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month in September in the United States. What this duck does is absolutely amazing. It's a social <laughs> robot and it helps children communicate their feelings. So imagine you're a child, you're in a hospital setting, people are coming in every 15 minutes, they're asking you how you feel. You don't know how you feel. You know, wow. you don't know if it's pain or anxiety or if you're just angry because you can't be outside playing with your friends because you're getting poked every two hours, whatever that looks like. So there are feeling cards and the feeling cards look like emoji, emojis, but they're RFID chips huh. and everyone speaks emoji. So when you touch the emoji to the duck's chest, the duck has the feeling. So if I am a caregiver, an oncologist or a nurse or a child life specialist, I go into the child's room and I say, Mike, how is your duck feeling today? And the child will pick up maybe the green chip, which means you're a little queasy, you're not mm -hmm. feeling terribly well, and touch it to the duck's chest. It, the duck also does some other amazing things. It has a port, just like the child, that can be attached. And when the port is attached, it develops a heartbeat. Oh, wow. Wow. which is very soothing and it nuzzles with the child. Oh, that's great. Oh, it, it has so many wonderful features. There's an app with it. They can blast off to outer space. They can blast off to a farm and hear all sorts of farm sounds and go to a carnival and hear all sorts of carnival sounds. They can bathe their ducks. They can feed their ducks. They take care of their ducks in very much the same way they are taken care of. You'll indulge me my favorite story about my special Aflac dog. I was with a journalist from the Washington Post at National Children's in DC. Right. We met a family. I, I have chills and, and I'll probably tear up. Two boys, twins. Um, one was cancer free. The other was not. And they were just under two when one of the brothers was diagnosed with cancer. They really had a hard time because the boys weren't terribly verbal at that point, explaining why one was in the hospital all the time, while one was getting poked, while one was having surgery, the other was not. And so the father showed us 
how he used the dot to communicate with both boys to tell them what was going on. But then this was the most powerful thing because the boys are almost four now. You know how they say twins have their own language? Right. Particularly at that age. Well, then the boys showed us how they used the dot to communicate with each other. I mean, when I tell you it is the most rewarding thing I've ever worked on, I kid I you not. We, we're in thousands of hospitals at this point. We are, um, we've given out about 7,000 in the U.S. <laughs> wow. We've given out several hundred in Japan three years ahead of schedule because when people saw the benefits of the program, they really wanted to be a part of it. So we had to pull up the timeline. Um, <laughs> we have gone into the supply chain management, the electronic manufacturing, you know, all these new businesses that I, I never thought um, I would be so actively engaged in. But it's it's been incredible. And and for those who do ask, um, even though we've done this as a straight PR um, campaign no advertising on this. We right. do a lot of events-based things. We work with the Children's Oncology Group, with the Child Life Specialist Associations, with Children's Miracle Network. We attend all their events and we do the demos and we have iPads set up so you can sign up your hospital. You get them completely free. There's no charge. The company is committed to doing this in perpetuity until we find a cure for this or the children are no longer in need of treatment. And uh, it's, it's been absolutely incredible. But six months in, I got the question, so what does this do for sales? And it actually came from an outside person. Okay. And so we asked. Um, at that point, 15% of the American public had heard of my special app, Black Duck. And 100% of those surveyed who had heard of the duck were much more likely, were much more likely to buy product than those who had not heard. Yeah. It's a, it's an amazing story in so many ways, not only from a, the way you went about it. I mean, what a case study, you know, using, met, using metrics, tying it to business strategy, but also the perennial question for financial uh, businesses, a, a company like yours insurance, is how do, we, how do we make connection to real people? And uh, it's so hard in some businesses to do that, Catherine, right? You think, well, gee, we sell insurance, you know, really, how do we touch people and, and show them the values and, and the kind of people we have here? And this is just an amazing story that anything is possible if you really, in many ways, follow your heart, which is what you all did. So, Catherine, we have a lot of students who listen to our podcast, and we, we do this in cooperation with BU. So, um, what do you look for these days? It's an important question that Mike and I get asked all the time. In the talent you hire, skills and capabilities, that kind of thing. And um, maybe things that you don't look for as much as you did, let's say, 10 years ago. Interesting. I will share what I do look for. I mean, clearly, okay. you've got to be a strong writer. Any, any type of journalism background is, is always going to be beneficial. The last thing is the most important, and it's something I can't teach, and that's judgment. We have actually instituted a series of tests for our new hires. There's an AP style quiz 
that you have to take. Wow. And yeah, before, and that's during the interview process. I'm getting a lot of thumbs up on that. I love it. The, the other is a writing test, but the scenarios all force you to apply judgment in tricky situations. It, it's really about um, just trying to gauge judgment. So what you're saying is, is, is in a sense, because society and the way our comp- companies move, they've got to be very agile. They're placed in, in situations where there's lots of complex issue that what you really value is people's ability to quickly assess a situation and have good judgment. Yeah. Critical thinking. Yeah. So we've been on the, on the question about students and, uh, and skills. But one of the things that's kind of interesting is the students that are in colleges now at BU, uh, the students that are in the high schools are increasingly more diverse than previous generations. In fact, in some places, we're like at a tipping point, where we've got kind of a majority of minority students. Um, and yet, the population in the workforce hasn't quite caught up. Now, you've been an advocate for diversity and inclusion. Uh, You're profiled in uh, diverse voices, profiles in leadership. Uh, From your perspective, what can marketing and PR leaders do to better advance diversity and inclusion? So first of all, you can't have diversity without inclusion. If you don't have an inclusive culture, you will never have a truly diverse workforce. The other thing that's important to keep in mind is today, because of the evolution of all of these efforts, it's not just diversity and inclusion anymore, it's diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. So if you are not treating your workforce equitably, and that includes equity and pay, equal pay for the same jobs, then you won't ever Diverse comfortable being there. They want to be there, and they're they feel free to express their opinions, which makes the whole much much better. I started out in aerospace and defense. I could walk through the building for days and not see another woman. And that's how it was back then. Now I work for a company that is approximately sixty eight percent female and almost fifty percent minority. Wow. So, so we're getting there. It's just taking us a while. And, and Catherine, how does that translate onto your communications team at Affleck? Are you seeing similar numbers on your team, if you don't mind me asking? No, I, I am. I am. I'm not going to lie. I have a small number of African-Americans on the team. Yeah. And that is fascinating to me. Um, I went home to my alma mater, uh, University of Louisiana Lafayette, about three years ago to give a speech and I was there for the communications honor society induction. And it was fascinating to me that out of the say 16 inducted, probably a dozen were African-American Wow! and there were probably three or four African-American males. Mm -hmm. So I know that if you're a science-based person, comms may not be as sexy as IT, uh, certainly the financial reward is not going to be as great. Uh, but if we can get people who have a passion and a propensity to this to follow that passion, you can have a really great career doing this. I've been yeah. very, very lucky. I get to do what I love with people that I absolutely adore. 
That's amazing. So just coming back, Catherine, to uh, the current situation with COVID-19, we're at the point in this crisis where we're beginning to think about what's next. And we see some states beginning to open up. How are you and how is Affleck thinking about what the new normal looks like? What's happening at Affleck? Well, we are putting a lot of thought into it. And we have set up a plan that's return to work. But we have a series of triggers that will have to trip prior to us bringing people back. And it's going to be a very stage approach, 25% at first. Those will all be volunteers. Um, I'm happy to volunteer to be in that first wave, but that's just personality. <laughs> um, we probably won't get to 50% back until school starts in the fall. Hmm. Um, we have to have daycare centers open, schools right. open. A lot of things have to happen um, in terms of the curve being much flatter, uh, but it's a very prescribed formula. But keep in mind, Gary, that when we went out, we were less than 5% of the population working remotely of our employees in the U.S. We went up to 98% in two and a half weeks. That was a huge investment in not just time, resources, communications, but also technology. So if those people can work remotely, why not? Why not? Yes. So I don't think there's a world that we will go back to whatever the new normal is that look like our old normal. It really is fundamentally different. And you think about headquarters and real estate and office space and all of the sunk costs that you've had as a company forever, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. is, and it changed within the matter of a few months. And yeah. how it sounds, Catherine, that you've done it quite easily, but I know it wasn't easy. Right? It was uh, just an amazing and deeply uh, thought out plan. It, it was. It was also a case of driving the bus while you're putting on the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> now, one last thing, and, and that is uh, both Gary and I are big believers that when you're in a crisis and you're, you have people who are handling the situation, whether they're in communications or other parts of the organization, uh, that you have to think about your team and you have to think about how do you keep them up? How do you keep them focused? One, how's your team doing? They are doing great. Um, so I know what you're getting at. I do this for all my team, but w one evening every other week, I have a catered meal sent to their homes. So at least that's one night they oh, don't nice. have to worry about doing the day job, homeschooling, and, and getting three meals done. Uh, believe it or not, of all the things I've ever done throughout my career, um, award bonuses, dog grants, whatever, <laughs> uh, that has gone over the biggest of anything. And then on those opposite weeks, we have uh, town halls through WebEx. Mm -hmm. And we have pizza delivered to their homes for our town Very home. nice. Um, so it, just anything you can do to relieve the pressure. But yes, they have come through like champions. Wow. I'm amazed. Well, talk about leading with your heart. Those small things, as you say, make a big difference. I think, Mike, actually for podcast hosts, a catered meal every now and then. <laughs> Don't you think? I'll let you guys work that out. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you, Catherine. It's been terrific having Catherine Hernandez-Blades, the SVP at AFLAC, who's the Chief ESG and Communications Officer. Catherine, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.